It's so simple to focus on the culture war as defining our politics, but the reality is the neoliberal order is coming apart. What's that mean? Find out more. Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Neoliberalism. What is that anyway? It's quite different, very different from what we mean by liberalism. What is neoliberalism? How has it affected the U.S. and the world? And as we move through the 2020s, are we now witnessing what could be the end of neoliberalism? Neoliberalism has finally been widely accepted as a description of post-1970s economic reality, but recent political developments, especially since the pandemic, have generated discussion about the possibility that something new is emerging. So what is this neoliberalism, and will the something new be better or worse? As we wade into this little understood yet highly impactful topic, here to explain is our guest Gary Gerstel, who writes in the fall 2023 issue of Dissent an article titled, A Real Opening, Neoliberal Ideas and Institutions Are Still With Us, But the Political Order They Constituted Is Not. Gary Gerstel, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here with you today. Gary is Paul Mellon Professor of American History at the University of Cambridge. He's the author and editor of more than 10 books, including two prize winners, American Crucible and Liberty and Coercion. His most recent book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, was shortlisted for the Financial Times Best Business Book of the Year and chosen as Best Book of 2022 by the Financial Times and Prospect magazine. He's a Guardian columnist and also has written for The Atlantic Monthly, The New Statesman, The Nation, The New York Review of Books. He frequently appears on BBC Radio 4, BBC World Service, and NPR, and was a regular on the podcast Talking Politics. He kicks off his new book's introduction with this assertion. In the second decade of the 21st century, the tectonic plates structuring American politics of life, politics and life, began to shift. Stick with us, dear listener, and we'll explore that. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, could it be that we are at the beginning of something that not just those of us on the left can welcome, but perhaps a new arrangement, perhaps one that can connect with many angry people who have felt left out of the economic structure, who put their hopes for change in Donald Trump. Can it uh, connect various different uh, strings? Well, uh, we're at a point in history where a lot of things are possible. And exactly what's going to come out of this at this moment in time, as we're speaking in 2023, is not yet clear. I think by the end of this decade, we'll have a clear sense of what the future is going to look like. What is clear is that we are at an inflection point, that the principles organizing the American and world political economy for 50 years, really since the age of Reagan, uh, no longer provide the assured guidance that they once did. Uh, and we live in a moment of, of change when many, many people on the left and the right are beginning to rethink basic principles of how to organize economic life, what we want from the economy, uh, what role 
government will play in that process. Uh, and in this moment, I see uh, more possibility than I've had, than I've seen in some time for moving beyond a neoliberal world. A neoliberal world is one that privileges free markets, uh, the free operation of capitalism without constraint uh, above all other issues and concerns. And so there may be a social democratic future in an American vernacular waiting for us somewhere later in the 2020s, but we also have to be alert to other possibilities coming out of this decade, which is uh, there's no doubt that in the U.S. and elsewhere, there's tremendous affection for the strong leader who's got to get rid of what they like to call democratic niceties and frivolities and want to rule in an authoritarian manner. Uh, I can't say for sure that the social democratic future is going to triumph over the authoritarian one. The election in 2024 is going to be a big test, big test in that regard. But what I think we can say is that people are looking around for alternative ways of organizing the economy in ways that serve the needs of a greater number of people than what the neoliberal order, or what I call the neoliberal order, served. And that neo, there's so much to talk about, that neoliberal order. I mean, when did that term first come about? I mean, we've heard liberal for, you know, a couple of hundred years or so. But neoliberal, and how is it, you know, if it's just letting capital be the uh, the driver of pretty much everything, just unleashing it, how is that different from traditional conservatism? Uh, well, terminolo- terminology is a problem in American and politics. Yeah, it true. Has been, it, it, <laughs> it has been for a long time. Uh, I think the uh, here's the best shorthand way of describing ideological changes in America um, that have gone on for more than 100 years. Uh, in the late 18th century, early 19th century, a long time ago when the, this country, the United States, began, uh, there was a phrase that we now refer to as classical liberalism, which meant many things, but in terms, in economic terms, it meant uh, freeing the economy from government constraints. And government constraints were then seen as being those imposed by monarchs, aristocrats, yeah. deeply obstructionist to the free movement of goods and trade and holding down the wealth that a society could create. The architect of this was Adam Smith, the great Scottish political economist of the 18th century who wrote The Wealth of Nations. And there's a tremendous amount of classical liberalism in, er, in late 18th, early 19th century America. Neoliberalism is, is quite similar to that original classical liberalism. Free capitalism from constraints, let it do its thing. So why do we call it neoliberalism? Because in the 1930s and 40s, Franklin Roosevelt, the most significant president of the 20th century, yes. engaged in a rather brilliant and clever terminological heist. <laughs> and he stole he stole the name liberalism from its rightful owners and he imbued it with a different meaning. And once Roosevelt and the New Deal intervened, liberalism was no longer about freeing the economy from constraint. It was about building up a strong state that could manage capitalism in the public interest. How is this connected to liberalism? Well, Roosevelt made the argument that it used to be thought that if you just free the individual from state controls, he or she will be free and independent and they'll have all the liberty to do what they want to do. And Roosevelt said in the 20th century, 
formula no longer works because private institutions of power, namely corporation, corporations are so strong. Inequality in American capitalist society is so deep that even if you free people from the state, they're not going to be free. They're going to be at the mercy of corporations. Uh. So if they're to, going to be able to enjoy their liberty, their liberalism, you need a strong state to give them what they need, uh, economic security, higher wages, better education, pensions, social security in their old age, help for disabilities incurred on the job or having the misfortune of having a disabled child. The government must do these things so that people will be able to be free and enjoy their freedom. And so from the 1930s forward, liberalism was no longer about uh, freeing people from the state. It was about building a strong state to manage capitalism in the interest of uh -huh. a broad cross-section of Americans. And that is what we think of as liberalism today. That is what Joe Biden is is trying to do. And so those who came in the wake of this transformation and the meaning of liberalism, what were they going to call themselves? Well, many of them called themselves conservatives. But conservative, the label, and this is something important about what liberalism and capitalism entailed, and that was freeing people from convention, freeing people from the inheritance of the past, freeing them to disrupt, to invent. The term liberal captures that better, and because the term liberal was unavailable, having been appropriated by the Democrats and FDR, they chose the term neoliberal, which to them connoted a, a return to the principles of 18th century classical liberalism. So that's the circuitous way mm. that we get to neoliberalism. Uh, some people still prefer the term conservative to describe unleashing capitalism's power. But I don't think that conservatism is the best term because conservatism implies respect for institutions, order, inheritance. Yes. Capitalism in the last 50 years has been about disruption, innovation, upheaval. So I think the term neoliberal captures that spirit of free market capitalism better than the label conservative does. And it seems to be a label, uh, a term that is beginning to catch on. More and more people are growing more comfortable with using it to hmm. describe an era in American history and politics. Uh, I'll tell you still, as, as I use that term, uh, just, you know, with other people, people don't know what neoliberalism is. I mean, they know neo means new and liberal, liberal. But uh, it's it is different from from conservatism for sure because as you say I mean to me you know these people these days who who somehow get the stuck with the label conservative are not conservative if they're trying to destroy democracy and destroy the constitution that's not conserving anything in particular but talk about conservatives and and how this is not conservatism in what ways did the Clintons who would not call themselves conservative. But how did they embody this new approach, which was first introduced by Ronald Reagan, I think? Tell us about the Clintons and, and the Reagan legacy. What did, how did they carry it on and, and, and uh, actually make it happen? Well, Reagan's major campaign was to dismantle what Roosevelt had built and to dismantle the New Deal. It's interesting because Reagan considered Roosevelt the greatest political communicator of the 20th century, and he wanted to be the 
second greatest political communicator of the 20th century. But if he admired Roosevelt in terms of his message and his ability to communicate, he despised the legacy of Roosevelt in America. He despised the establishment of a strong state Mm. to manage the economy and the public interest. He only saw tyranny in strong states and a path toward communism, which he regarded as the worst possible fate for humankind. And so his campaign as president was to dismantle the New Deal state, to free capitalism from its constraints, believing that capitalism left to its own devices would seek out avenues for innovation, growth that would yield the greatest benefit for the greatest number of people. The question for Clinton when he becomes president in 1993, uh, after 12 years of Republican rule, eight years of Reagan and four of George H.W. Bush, would he continue in this path or would he try and restore America to its Franklin Roosevelt New Deal heyday? In one of Clinton's most significant declarations of his presidency was to say the era of big government is over. And he not only meant that rhetorically, he went about dismantling dismantling regulations that the New Deal had imposed in different sectors of the economy and in the probably did more to deregulate capitalism, deregulate the economy than Ronald Reagan himself had done. Mm. He signed the North American Free Trade Agreement, making the entire northern part of the Western Hemisphere a a free trade zone. Uh, He deregulated the communications industry, um, allowing uh, a few giant corporations to monopolize in private hands uh, all the means of communication that we use to talk with each other as we are doing today. America had a robust tradition of regulating media in the public interest regarding communication through media as essential to the success of a democracy. Uh, Clinton deregulated that. He deregulated the, uh, presided over the deregulation of the provision of electricity. He also, in a very, very significant move, uh, repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, which was a major, major achievement of the New Deal to impose regulation on Wall Street recognizing that the wild speculation, the free market of Wall Street of the, of the 1920s had done a lot to contribute to the worst in economic crash in American history, that being the Great Depression. Uh, he deregulated Wall Street. These were all what one would have thought were Republican right. measures. But here's a Democratic president doing um, Reagan's work. And so in that way, uh, I see him as facilitating the triumph of what I call the neoliberal order, not rolling it back to the era of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And that's why he's better seen as a neoliberal than a social democrat in the fashion of FDR. Yeah, he was somehow he was able to uh, be a a Democrat, but uh, a lot of Democrats like me felt like Boy, he's really, uh, you know, he's carrying out Reagan's agenda better than Reagan ever did. And and that's not FDR liberalism, not at all. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about neoliberalism. Uh, our guest t- today, Gary Gerstel, has a new book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. 
which was uh, shortlisted for a whole bunch of uh, book awards, and uh, it it gets into some heavy stuff. It's it's more meaningful than uh, you know what the Republicans are talking about these days with just just the culture war. But this is it seems like both Democrat and Republican, aside from the what I consider traditional Democrats like. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and a few others. Uh, it's it's a new direction for the the Democratic Party, which Democrats had kind of embraced Keynesianism, Keynesianism uh, in that the capitalist economy must be made to serve the common good. It is what one author, uh, Zachary Carter, called the price of peace. That it works, the economy works when it works for a lot of people. It's better that way, and that's the government's role. So this is a really big uh, change here. And there was, oddly enough, and I wonder in what ways this, this what we were just talking about leads to this question, in what ways do both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders uh, agree and appeal to a similar, if not the same, constituency? This has to do with, I think, the frustration about the power of neoliberalism. Well, I, I I talk in my in a in a the next to last chapter of my book about the 2016 campaign. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the surprises of that campaign was that Trump and Sanders became the two most dynamic players in American politics, and Hillary Clinton, the heir apparent to Obama and Bill Clinton, standing on the sideline, not knowing quite yeah. what hit her. And of course, Bernie. Uh, what's interesting about Sanders and Trump is that they were saying the same things in 2016 that they were saying in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century when no one was listening to them. And the fact that they moved from the margins to the center yes. is validation of my argument that something profoundly powerful is happening and changing in the second decade of the 21st century. So it's not as though they changed their tune. Right. It's that many more people began to listen to these people for the first time. And uh, now, of course, in most respects, they are at opposite ends of the political spectrum with Bernie on the left, the second most successful socialist in American history after Eugene Victor Debs and uh, Trump on the authoritarian ethno-nationalist Right. But I quote at length from a speech that Trump gives to steelworkers in Pittsburgh in the 2016 campaign. And if you did not attach a label to that speech, you would not be able to tell whether Bernie or Donald was giving the speech. And it's all about uh, steelworkers having suffered in free market America and, and manufacturing moving offshore and bad jobs replacing good jobs or no jobs replacing Uh, good jobs, and the good people of America having suffered mightily at the hands of the overlords of fire, who sold ordinary people a bill of goods, that if you free capitalism from constraints, it will lift all boats. And Trump is saying very clearly, that is not what has happened. Uh, Now, neoliberalism was profoundly connected to globalization. Yes. Because for neoliberalism, for to to really free capitalism from its constraints has to be a global project. It's not enough to do it in the United States. And so uh, those who wanted to free capitalism from constraints talked in terms of free trade, free movement of people, uh, free movement of capital, free movement of information. These were all hallmarks of 
the neoliberal era. And Trump and Sanders were both saying, what good has all this free movement brought America? What good has it brought to ordinary people in America? And has it brought ordinary people more suffering uh, or, or more privilege? And Trump is talking decisively that for ordinary people in America, it has brought far more suffering. And so he was talking specifically there about ending free trade. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, uh, did not celebrate free trade. Uh, of course, um, Donald Trump was interested in using markets to enrich himself and other rich people, his cronies. But he was not enthralled by market ideology. He did not believe that markets were the most perfect form of human existence because he knew as a real estate guy from New York how easily markets could be manipulated by individuals. So he was not in the thrall of neoliberal ideology. He thought it was a bunch of hooey. And of course, Sanders thought it was also a bunch of hooey. And Sanders thought much more systematically about it. So we need to substitute fair trade for free trade. And a fair trade is not going to work to the advantage of working class Americans. Then we have to abandon this gospel of free trade. And we have to think much more seriously about economic policies that benefit the broad middle of American life. And in, in rethinking the gospel of free trade, the gospel of the free movement of capital is being, bringing the greatest good to the greatest number. Uh, Trump and Sanders were not all that far apart. Of course, they were far apart on issues of ethnicity and race. Right. Sanders understood that the working class of America was a multiracial class um, full of people of color, full of immigrants, and their rights had to be protected as well. Whereas this yeah. is where they diverged. Trump uh, wanted to privilege hmm? Americans of white European yes. Christian descent. So there was a, a world of difference between them in that regard. But in terms of abandoning certain basic principles of the neoliberal era, they were in some respects on the same page. And I do think that's, I'm not quite sure why the, the Hillary Clinton camp has not yet it doesn't seem to me, I don't see any sign that they've recognized that she was, as you say, on the sidelines, that what Bernie has been talking about all his life since he was mayor of Burlington, if not before, uh, that uh, that these issues that had been sort of fringe perceived are now people are getting it. And what the people in the middle of the country, in the literal middle of the country, saw Hillary as serving the neoliberal elites on both coasts and people in the middle both economically and physically felt left out and they had frankly reason to feel left out and so uh you know i i hope the democrats get it this time around i don't know if they will democrats have a nasty habit of snatching mm -hmm. defeat from the jaws of victory you spoke of something that connects the usually opposite senators elizabeth warren and jd vance who is from the middle of the country Please tell us about that. If we are indeed moving out of a neoliberal era, we would not only expect Democrats to begin questioning neoliberal dogmas. And I, I think the Biden administration has questioned neoliberal dogmas in ways that Obama and Clinton never did. And we can come back to that if you want to talk some more about 
Biden in that regard. But if if this really is a moment of inflection and, and transition, then we would expect uh, Republicans, some Republicans at least, to begin thinking differently about their own economic policies and to and to see some of them moving away from neoliberal orthodoxy. And we see this in the case of J.D. Vance and Elizabeth Warren, who are in serious discussions about reigning in the power of the banks, uh, which have only gotten larger and their power has gotten greater since the great crash of 2008 and 2009 that they did so much to bring on. And there's a tremendous amount of anger in America, uh, not only at what the banks yes. did, but at the perception that the recovery, the recovery from the 2008-2009 financial crash, a uh, recovery orchestrated uh, by Obama, mm-hmm. was designed first to save the banks and then to, and Wall Street, yes. and then to save ordinary people. Uh, and if if you were heavily invested in the stock market, if you were an American heavily invested in the stock market, the whatever suffering you had experienced during the great crash of 2008, 2009 was pretty much gone by 2010, 2011, certainly by 2012. In other words, the stock market had recovered all of its value and then went on this great growth spurt yes. uh, for a decade, much of it fueled by what is called quantitative easing, uh, which is about um, holding interest rates so low that if savings has wants to make any money on those savings, they have to invest them in the stock market, which propels then the growth of the stock market for those mm. who have investments in it. If you were an ordinary wage earner without investments in the stock market, you didn't recover from that crisis until 2016, 2018, 2020, and in some cases, not even today. And among these people who have suffered are some of J.D. Vance's constituents, both in Ohio and, of course, he has roots in Appalachia. So he's aware of these people who, whose lives, economic lives and well-being had not done well in the aftermath, in the decade or decade and a half aftermath. And so here we find him talking seriously uh, with Elizabeth Warren about unfinished business from 2008, 2009. Mm which is reigning in the power of the big banks, either imposing more regulations on them or beginning to take steps that might break some of them up so that we're no longer in a situation in the future where a bank is so big we can't allow it to fail, irregardless of the misdeeds it had engaged in. And another example of this cooperation between Republicans and Democrats, Elizabeth Warren is also talking to Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, uh, and uh, and Lena Khan, who's chair of the Federal Trade Commission, is involved in these conversations. And this has to do with the question of have the social media companies in America gotten so big and so powerful that their sheer monopoly power represents a threat, not just to the American economy, but to American democracy. Because once you invest so much economic power in one or two or three or four private corporations, they have the power to corrupt the political process, to buy off legislators, to buy off the Senate, to buy off the House of Representatives, right. so that America can never get to the democratic destination that they want to get to. And so we see these conversations across these, right. you know, these deep partisan divides. And that, to me, is a sign 
that uh, we are beginning to shift into a different world of political economy where there are dissident Democrats and dissident Republicans thinking along parallel lines. Now, the million dollar question for you and your listeners and for me is can Hawley and Lena Khan ever come to an agreement on an actual bill <laughs> to regulate um, Google, um, Amazon? Uh, can Elizabeth Warren and J.D. Vance ever agree on a bill that can get through the Senate that will have meaningful reform and regulation of the financial sector and Wall Street of American life? I don't know the answer to that. Um, we don't know yet. The, the proof will be in the pudding. The proof will be in a bill that gets put before the Senate, and we have to see what kinds of discussions emerge from that and whether there's an area of broad enough agreement so as to allow meaningful legislation to get through a Congress and to make it a functioning national legislature once again. Oh, boy, I don't know nice. if that can happen. <laughs> I don't know if that can happen. But the fact that these discussions are going on, yeah. these, would not, these would not have been possible five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago. I hate hate to use the word hope prematurely, but one one never knows with that. And you know, it just people are familiar with the term populism, and and you know, it gets associated with with the Trump movement. Uh, but historically, as you know, uh, Gary, that uh, there was prairie populism, which took on the banks, which was of the left, which was in the middle of America because people felt left out. That was in the early part of the uh, 20th century. And uh, so this doubt about what we call neoliberalism these days and, and anger at by ordinary people being left out, it's nothing new, but I, why, why do the What's your guess of the, what the factors are as to why the Democratic Party of the 21st century uh, has so many Democratic officeholders who cling to neoliberal sentiments? Is it just the money? I imagine it may be. Well, money is, big, is, a, is a big part of it. Uh, we don't talk about this much anymore, but the uh, 2010 Supreme Court Citizens United decision right. um, that that's remove restrictions on how much individuals could give to politics and politicians was a disaster for American democracy. Uh, we've acclimated to it. We continue to run our politics, but, and we cease talking about it, but that doesn't make the fact that we've ceased talking about it doesn't make the decision any less horrendous or less injurious uh, to American democracy. And indeed, the costs of winning an election continue to go up, the cost of media. Yeah. And so the money that uh, senators and congressmen have to raise in order to stay in office, get elected to office, is so extreme that it that further uh, skews American politics uh, to the wealthy. And the Democrats made their peace with Wall Street. This was part yeah. of the Clinton, this was part of the Clinton cell in the 1990s um, and deregulating Wall Street and it's deregulating telecommunications has brought Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley's and the venture capitalists and their connection to Wall Street it brought this whole phalanx into the Democratic Party in a very powerful way. And interestingly, when uh, Obama was faced with who he was going to bring into his administration to handle the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, he returned to many of the same neoliberal 
policymakers, many of them out of Goldman Sachs, mm -hmm. that Clinton had used in the 1990s. So there was profound and deep uh, con continuity there. Uh, this, you know, this uh, explains, uh, uh, I think, a good part of the Democrats um, being beholden to. Yeah. Uh, uh, and also what happens is that when a I talk about political orders establishing themselves and once a political order establishes itself, it, it achieves a kind of hegemony. Mm. It orders it orders the world in which we all live and it becomes hard for individuals in that world, whether it's you or me or our pol our political leaders in Washington to think their way out of that world. It just seems the way of the world. Uh, if you want to succeed in politics, you have to free capitalism from constraints. Mm. And for a long time, no one challenged that. Uh, and it just became normalized that this is the only way to succeed in late 20th, early 21st century America. And coming out of such a moment is not easy. Yeah. It happens uh, in a in a herky-jerky way, uh, not all at once. And it requires leaders to emerge and provide an alternative way of, of seeing things. Uh, so the Democrats were immersed in this neoliberal world for for decades and moving out of that world has been difficult. And mm -hmm. also uh, part of the damage done by the dominance of the neoliberal era was the belief that government couldn't really do anything well or effectively. Right. right. Uh, and, you know, generations of Democratic politicians, this is where Republican hegemony was so powerful and injurious. So everyone began to think of the federal government as an institution that couldn't do many things right. right. And it takes, you know, after decades of preaching and after decades of maligning institutions of government as being unable to operate effectively in the popular interest, it takes time for new generations to begin to believe in the power of government once again to do good. Yeah. And that is happening. I mean, we see that in the with the, the Biden administration. Uh, and also an, another element of the story that is another, I think, sign of hope uh, is that the um, the left in America has been reborn uh, in Sanders, um, Warren, Ocasio-Cortez uh, and others, you know, many people outside of formal political structures but there's there there is a real left in American uh, politics today, and that has uh, given politicians a different voice, speaking in a different register, and it's become a strong enough voice, though, that Democrats sitting in the middle of the party or on the right of the party have to listen to it and take account of it. And part of what is striking about the Biden administration is that there is a, a kind of dialogue between the left and center of the uh -huh. Democratic Party that has not existed for a long time. It did not exist in the 1980s, 1990s, first decade of the 21st century. You have to go back to the 1960s. Maybe you have to go back to the 1930s to see this kind of dialogue between the left and center of the Democratic Party going on. And historically, the Democratic Party has made its greatest advances when the left and center of the, of the party were in this kind of dialogue. They were talking to each other. 
they were bat batting ideas back and forth. They were compromising with each other. It's never an easy relationship. Uh, and the left is always in danger of getting burnt or cast out or purged. That's for sure. But it's, al it's also the case that the Democratic Party has and progressive politics have yeah. made their greatest advances in America when the Democratic Party has been has had this kind of dialogue between the left and the center. And that dialogue is going on today in ways I would say has not gone on for certainly since the 1960s and perhaps since the 1930s. And that's a reason to be hopeful that the, the Democratic Party may, in fact, be turning slowly but surely in a different direction. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about something exceedingly important to democracy, and that's our economy and, and who controls the economy. And is there any democratic input in the economy? Not with neoliberalism, it hasn't been. Our guest today is Gary Gerstel, whose new book is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. And uh, he's written an article in Dissent magazine as well uh, with a similar title, Neoliberal Ideas and Institutions are still with us, but the political order they constituted is not. And it's always, if you talk among Democrats, there's the, the traditional left and, and the, the center, uh, the mushy middle, whatever, uh, where people in the, in the center say, oh, you can't talk about those things. It's too, it's too far out. You, know, you have to be in the center. You can't rock the boat at all. I tell you, I think people are ready for a little boat rocking. And there was evidence of that in 2016 when, uh, you know, the, the Hillary Clinton, who was expected to win with her centrist uh, neoliberal uh, uh, shtick, huh, didn't. <laughs> and the people rejected that uh, w with enthusiasm. And so I, it seems like, as, as you say, the, the 2010s, the second decade, did resemble the 1930s and 70s. Uh, in regard to ideas which had been on the periphery but edged to the mainstream. But Democrats, there's a lot of people who I think connect with that, but Democrats, office holders, are afraid to touch it. It's like it's too hot. But I have to tell you, one of the people I interviewed on this show, Michael Kazin, wrote in his 2022 book, What It Took to Win. You also, it's very similar. You write, uh, Gary, Historically, progressive politics in America has made its greatest advantage when the relationship between the left and the Democratic Party has been strong. And that's what he says in his book. When, when the party connects with movements, it wins. The prairie populist, that was a movement. There's the labor movement, which is really surging right now. Uh, the DNC has missed, or maybe they ignore this fact, and what's happening now uh, you know, is this, is it sort of why it seems to be changing? Does, does the DN, I mean, I've long said that the DNC will be the last to get it. They're so institutional. <laughs> uh, but uh, do you think they're, are they starting to get it? I think, I, I think parts of the Democratic, Democratic Party are starting to get it. There is a, let, we can talk about two lefts. And I'm not going to oh, sure. talk about these in ideo ideological terms, but more in terms of where they're located in the polity or society. Uh, there, there is a left in the Biden administration. Um, people like Heather Boucher and the Council of Economic Advisors, um, Lena Khan, Federal Trade Commission, Tim Wu, uh, a, a colleague of Lena Khan's from Columbia Law School, has has worked on anti-monopoly and anti 
trust policy in uh, the Biden administration. There are other people like them. Uh, the I would even say uh, Jake Sullivan, whose history is not on the left. He gave us the National Security Advisor. Uh, he gave a speech in the spring around the time when the IMF, International Monetary Fund, was meeting in Washington. And I, I found it as to be a stunning speech that he was defining national security, not in terms of how big is our military relative to the Russian military or Chinese military, but um, how well are middle-class Americans doing mm. with the economic security of their in their own lives. For a national security advisor to be defining the goal of security in, in domestic economic terms, how are average Americans faring? We would never have heard Henry Kissinger yeah. talk in those terms. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> uh, or, you know, uh, or, or, or Clinton's national security yeah. advisor. Or Obama's. And, uh, yeah. and, or Obama's. And so this, this is a sign that uh, the thinking in the administration has changed. There are there is a left perspective present in the Biden administration, and it has uh, expressed itself in some of the key pieces of legislation that he's passed: infrastructure, massive infrastructure bill, um, the yes. massive climate bill, the so-called in- Inflation Reduction Act, which is not about inflation reduction at all. Also, the reshoring of 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 chip manufacture before. Um, uh, when, when Biden was getting the the became clear he was getting the nomination, and Bernie Sanders was going to accept that as a that's a call and plea, the two men agreed to set up six task forces to plot a future for the Democratic Party, and those six task forces laid out the legislative agenda that Biden announced during his first year in office. Now, a lot of that wasn't successful, but important parts of it were. So in that Biden-Sanders um, uh, dialogue, we see a, a, a center-left dialogue of the sort we have not seen in the Democratic Party when it was in office for many, many years. And I find that uh, a very encouraging sign. So that's one left. I'm, I'm defining this left as the left being present in parts of the administration and having the ear of, of the president. Uh, Biden has not become a leftist. He's no. still the guy from Delaware uh, that he's long been. But I think he understands that the country and the world are at a point of inflection and that the old neoliberal policies of Obama and Clinton won't suffice anymore. He needs different voices. They need to be heard. They need to be incorporated into policy. The other left is the left located outside the administration because no left in an administration, no matter how powerful, has got to get things done on its own. It needs the pressure of social movements yes. uh, outside. And here, I think the the awakening of uh, the labor movement in the last two years uh, has been a very important, very impressive. Yes. Some major victories, first on university campuses, um, which was very important. The Teamsters victory was huge in terms of also in terms of the the wage increases they got, some approaching somewhere between 30 and 50 percent. That's 30 to 50 percent for certain categories of workers. And now the UAW has committed itself to a very interesting and well-planned strike, not taking all UAW workers out, but striking strategic plants 
of the auto manufacturers. Uh, and we've seen also Amazon, um, Starbucks. Uh, there's a lot of interest in unions, a lot of support in the general population. Yes. I think this also crosses partisan lines. We still are not approaching a union movement that can compare with the union eruptions of the 1930s that did so much to secure Roosevelt's reelection in 1936 and, and implanted the New Deal on American life. But if, if this moment of possibility is to be successful, that kind of social movement based in unions, pushing issues of economic equality and inequality, secure, economic security and insecurity into the center of American politics, um, this is absolutely essential. I just saw, I haven't seen any details on this, but I just saw um, uh, that Trump is going to address auto workers in Detroit. I noticed. While the Republicans are debating, having their second debate in Detroit. I, I don't know what the hell he's going to do. And I, I can't. The fact, that he, the fact that he's choosing to address auto workers at this moment is interesting. <laughs> is interesting. And um, uh, and uh, and another and and another sign that perhaps he uh, is awakening to the fact that labor. Now he has no sympathy for organized labor. No, but that, that he is awakening to uh, a new political force in uh, in American politics. So the the labor movement is beginning to flex its muscles. It has to flex them a lot more. And that pressure from outside the beltway, from outside Washington, if you ask what's going to rebalance the imbalance that we have in politics, because the rich can distort the political process through their contributions. And I know there's a lot of fanfare surrounding the volume of small contributions that individuals can make. But you need something more than small contributions. You need a major social movement that is going to compel people in power to take notice and perhaps make the kinds of compromises that they would not otherwise be willing to make. Yes, you have to, politicians have to see, and as a recovering politician myself, I can, I can attest to this. Well, no, not really. That, but uh, that, you know, you have to see that it's safe out there, that there's a public that's with you. I mean, FDR said that to A. Philip Randolph with regard to a uh, Pullman strike, you know, go out there and make me do it. I want to help you. You got to make me do it. And Trump is always knows about ratings, ratings, ratings. And so much of politics is theater. And I, I'm getting the sense that it's, it's sort of entertaining to have something new rise up like a labor movement, that that's, people are liking it. I think the average person is connecting with it and liking it and, and seeing, yeah, you know, these uh, CEOs who, who, you know, make like tens of millions a year. And these these guys making the cars who actually do the work, I mean, you know, I I think the sympathy is changing, and that's really important. And it does affect uh, the uh, dominance of neoliberalism, which has uh, you know just uh, turn uh, 
capitalism loose. Let it let it go, and the markets uh, will uh, take care of everybody. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is talking about all these uh, things, these this neoliberal ideas and institutions, which are uh, starting to to fall. He's got a new book out, "The Rise and Fall of Neoliberal Order." Gary Gerstel, and uh, so how has I got to ask? In what ways the war in Ukraine has, as you write, done much to distance the world from key neoliberal principles? That, tell us about that. Well, I think both the the uh, pandemic and Ukraine, which are now bound together really in a moment in time, have uh, have pushed us further away from uh, neoliberal thinking, not intentionally, but just by creating new facts on the ground that both corporations and governments uh, had to confront. One of the principles of the neoliberal age was if you have a product to sell, find the cheapest place in the world you can to produce it. It right. doesn't matter how far away it is from the market, where you want to sell it, where your customers are, because ocean travel is so cheap and so frequent and so easy and so secure and so the world became encircled by these globe straddling supply chains that's part of what defines the neoliberal era with so many things you know china is has the center of so much manufacturing and production and then other parts of south and east asia uh, taiwan uh, south korea uh, singapore uh, vietnam now is coming on board uh, manufacturing in a major way. And the distance from America didn't matter uh, because of the IT revolution on the one hand and ease of transport on the other. And then the pandemic strikes and no one can go anywhere. And America can't get vital goods it needs from China. You know, all the protective equipment was being made over there. Would there be enough mm. uh, material to make the vials for the for the vaccine? Mm. Um, uh, would Americans have what they need with it to su- survive when the ability to travel um, uh, and the ability to move goods and to move people was literally shut down? Uh, and then came the war in Ukraine, uh, which had a similar effect. Um, and and the Europeans felt this most keenly because so much of their oil or natural gas was coming from Russia. And then as a penalty for invading Ukraine, the Europeans put sanctions on Russia, either stopping the flow of oil and natural gas altogether or severely shrinking the supply. Uh, And this deepened a sense of crisis that the pandemic had generated. Uh, And of course, uh, when governments and corporations began to think about the war in Ukraine, they weren't just thinking about Ukraine. They were thinking about, or the Ukraine, or they weren't just thinking about Russia's Ukraine. They were thinking about China's Ukraine. What is China's Ukraine? It's Taiwan. And where are three quarters of the computer chips that run 90% of the things we use in our lives now? Where are they made? Taiwan. What if China decides to do what Putin did and take over Taiwan and deprive the world of that absolutely, arguably, the most critical resource necessary to literally make the world work? Wow. 
so these were profound questions. And so governments felt compelled to start asking a different question, which is, which they hadn't asked in a long time, which was, what goods do our people absolutely need in order to survive and be secure in their daily existence? And they came up with a list of goods, food, because um, Ukraine is a breadbasket right. for a big part of the global south, and Russia stopped the export of grain, fuel, protective gear, chips, rare minerals. Every government in the world was forced to start thinking about taking steps to secure those goods that their country absolutely and their people absolutely depended on. And with the uh... once you begin to once you begin to think in those terms, uh, you begin to say, well, we may need to interfere and shape markets yes. to make sure we get what we need. We can't just say, let the market provide right. because the market may not be able to provide. And so a cardinal principle of neoliberalism, which was to say, let the market provide, the market will provide the best goods at the cheapest cost. And if you let a, a world being in the hands of capitalism, everything will work smoothly. That's not happening anymore. And so what governments began to do is to rethink the relationship of states to government. I mean, states to markets, governments to markets, and be willing to interfere with markets and private producers so as to mm. ensure the welfare of their people. This is what we call in the U.S. industrial policy. That's too weak a term to describe the, the bold kinds of interventions that the Biden administration and other governments are beginning to make in the private economy to ensure that the goods that Americans and other people's needs will continue to flow, and that if a crisis erupts, China invading Taiwan, mm. the government of the United States and other governments will be in a position to tell their people economic life, social life doesn't have to stop. We have taken measures, ah. we meaning the government uh -huh. acting on behalf of the people. And that begins to bring us back to a New Deal, yes. Keynes mentality that the neoliberal world had thrown away. <laughs> and again, as you say, you know, the definition of national security, it, change comes slowly. It, it's frustrating, but it is happening. And neoliberalism has sort of, uh, you know, the idea that, well, unlimited growth and profits, boundless, uh, and has unintentionally led to indulgence. Uh, I mean, the, the biggest selling vehicles are big, heavy trucks. And here we have, at the same time, the ever-growing concern about climate change. And these two are sort of uh, principles. I think the, the concern about saving the earth, you know, what international security uh, may, uh, uh, dare I say, trump the, uh, the the neoliberal appetite, and you know, maybe connect with the global south as well, which is uh, continuing to rise in, in uh, economic strength. A lot of changes are happening, and and as you say. Democrats and the left both need to gird themselves for the long march. It's going to be some rough terrain. What would you recommend? <sighs> would I recommend that there's going to be rough terrain? 
Uh, well, what what can Democrats do? What can we? Uh... Well, what can Democrats do in the rough terrain? <laughs> I think um, uh, I think the the best uh, advice I can offer is to for Democrats to pay attention to the neoliberal march to power, which took thirty to forty years. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, and what's impressive about the architects of the neoliberal revolution of the 80s and 90s, the, the ideological architects, the intellectuals, the policymakers, they began to speak about this in the 1940s. In the 1950s and 60s, they're utterly without power, influence, on the margins of everything. And then the economic crisis of the 1970s mm-hmm. come and, and they get their chance and they're ready. And they move quickly and decisively. But even then, it, it took another 20 years for them to, to, to triumph. And it's hard in our social media saturated age where everything is oriented. To, you talk about indulgence. Everything is oriented toward immediate satisfaction, yes. likes and dislikes. How, yes. how many likes can we get today? How many people will like this or dislike this podcast, right? We're always, <laughs> you know, we're always counting uh, everything all, all the time. And I think we have to understand that uh, if a new neoliberal order is to take shape, uh, it's going to take time. Now, I think we're already into a new era, probably 10 or 15 years. If you think it, how long it took the New Deal order to triumph in the early 20th century, you know, when did that struggle to establish a strong government to manage private capital and the public interest? When did that struggle start? It did not start no. after the Great Depression, 1930, 31, 32. This goes, takes us back to the populists you referenced earlier, the prairie populists of the 1890s. It starts in the 1890s. Yep. Uh, yep. And the struggle goes on for 30, 35 years before it triumphs. If that is any indication of, of the future that we're going to have, we're about 20 years into this new movement of establishing a strong state to manage the private economy and the public interest, which means we may have another 15 to 20 years to go, which means the mid mid 30s may be the time when a a new world is triumphing, uh, a progressive world. And so it's very important to um, for that's why I say uh, Democrats, progressives have to gird themselves. Yes. For the long march, and even if the Democrats lose in 2024, which I, God knows, I hope they don't. Right. Um, they can't take that as the end of the world. The struggle uh, must continue, and so having a proper conception of political time and yeah. how long it takes to establish a political order, yes, is absolutely vital. And as I said earlier, the the social media world in which we live has just made a recognition of that longer political time span it's much harder to hang on yeah. to but we need to. to yeah we need, we to. need, we, to. We need to we're out of time it's going to be a rough road ahead but you need to we all need to recognize that it takes time and to be patient and persistent all right thank you gary gerstel has been with us today his new book is the rise and fall of the neoliberal order uh, put out by Oxford University Press thank you so much and uh, we'll all do what we can very interesting perspective very helpful thank you Thank you very much, Bert. Thank you.
Don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.